I suspect that um, this past week, some of your time, uh, perhaps even much of your time, and energy and emotions and thought have been taken up with earthly matters. Uh, This morning, from Isaiah chapters 34 and 35, we turn our hearts and our minds to think about eternal matters. My, my desire to strongly pivot to eternal matters this morning should not be taken as a suggestion that earthly matters are unimportant. But I will say that they are not all important. Indeed, the reality of heaven and hell will shape how we live here on earth. And in these chapters, Isaiah presents us with another vision of the end. Isaiah presents us with a vision of recompense, the coming uh, judgment to the rebellion and evil in the world. And Isaiah presents us with a vision of redemption coming to the world. The central application from these chapters is simple. We must trust in God's redemption and walk as those who have been redeemed. While we live on earth, we live for eternity. And as we study God's Word together this morning, it's my prayer that anxious hearts will be settled and strengthened in the certainty of God's eternal salvation. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 34. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you can find that on page 594. 594. And while you're turning there, allow me to um, set the context of our study this morning. All throughout this study in the book of Isaiah, we've seen how Isaiah's message is summarized in his name. God is salvation. One of the factors which makes this book, makes the book of Isaiah complex, is that Isaiah's prophetic ministry uh, was long. He preached to the people of Judah for some 60 years. He saw kings and kingdoms rise and fall. And since this was the case, it's not surprising that Isaiah can speak about discrete events in different places in his work. Given that Isaiah is a prophet, while he has an eye on the present circumstances, uh, he is also looking to the future. His writing then bounces back and forth between historical realities and coming future realities. For example, the, uh, the first 12 chapters or so, Isaiah addressed the crisis that the people of Judah were facing around the time of 734 B.C. Their immediate neighbor to the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, formed an alliance with the nation of Syria. And together they pestered Judah. But Isaiah's message in the first 12 chapters was this. Do not worry. God is your salvation. He will deliver you from your enemies. Those chapters not only promised deliverance from Judah's immediate predicament but also promised deliverance for the whole world. God would send His Messiah, the one born of a virgin, who would deliver the world from the crisis brought about by sin and death. Isaiah's message is for both the present and the future. Then in chapters 13 through 27, Isaiah looked to the future. He pulled our gaze out of the present historical circumstance and took a worldwide perspective. In Isaiah chapters 13 through 27, the prophet clearly communicated that there was no hope to be found in the world, for the world was going to face the judgment of God. But even in those dark chapters, Isaiah buried promises filled with hope for those who believe. Yes, the world would face the judgment of God, but God would also save the world. 
He would save the world through His Messiah and King, who would even swallow up death, Isaiah told us. The world would one day come to worship God and sing His praises. The message for Judah was that God could be trusted in the midst of worldwide upheaval. In the chapters that we studied together last week, chapters 28 through 33, Isaiah brought a new set of historical realities into focus. In those chapters, we move from the crisis created by Israel and Syria in 734 BC to the crisis created by Assyria in the lead up to 722 BC. The Assyrian Empire began to expand and it was knocking on the door of the northern kingdom of Israel. In 722, it actually crushed the northern kingdom and carried its citizens off to exile. And the crisis, the Assyrian crisis, would continue for Judah right up until the time of 701 BC, when the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem and began banging on the gates. And the message of Isaiah in the face of that crisis was simple trust in God, He is your salvation. Just as the historical content in the first 12 chapters were followed by chapters which had an eye toward the future, so the historical content in chapters 28 through 33 are followed by chapters which have an eye toward the future. In chapters 34 and 35, Isaiah once again calls us to consider the end of all things. Isaiah's literary strategy is to proceed in cycles and circles while intensifying his message. Salvation is found in God and God alone. He calls us to consider the recompense that is coming to the world and the redemption of God's people. Judgment and mercy, wrath and love, recompense and redemption. These ideas are found side by side in these chapters and they come from the same God, which raises the question, What's the relationship between God's judgment and God's mercy? What, what's the relationship between God's wrath and God's love? Now, this is what I'd like for us to think about, to ponder in our first point, the relationship between recompense and redemption. And in order to do that, let me encourage you to turn over. I know I had you start in chapter 34. We're actually going to start in chapter 35. Sorry about that. Turn over just one chapter to Isaiah chapter 34. And we're going to look at verse 4. That's 595 of the Bibles provided. I want to begin here because this verse brings together the two main themes of the chapter. Isaiah 34 is predominantly about God's judgment on the world. And Isaiah 35 is predominantly about the redemption of God's people. This verse, unlike any other in these two chapters, brings together these central themes. See if you can hear the themes of recompense and redemption in this verse. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. I think that it's crucial for us to meditate on this verse for a moment. First, notice that this verse contains a message. It is a message that is meant to be delivered. Something is to be said, and something is to be said to a particular people, to those who are anxious in heart. Why would Isaiah's audience, why would the people of Judah and Jerusalem have anxious hearts? Well, they were anxious because the Assyrians had toppled the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them off to exile. Their immediate neighbors to the north 
were dislodged from their homes and carried away to a land whose language, customs, and culture they did not know. And Isaiah's audience, Judah and Jerusalem, were anxious that the same was going to happen to them. In chapter 29, the Lord told the people of Jerusalem that they didn't need to worry about the Assyrians. There he promised them that he would stop them. But Isaiah's audience was no doubt anxious because in 701 BC, the Assyrians made it all the way to the gates of their capital city. Isaiah's audience was anxious. They were waiting for God to keep that promise. Are you really going to stop the Assyrians? The crisis that God brought to their gate was not intended to arouse anxiety, but to arouse faith in the God who saves His people. Isaiah's audience was anxious. They were waiting and waiting. I appreciate how Edward Young, an Old Testament scholar, articulates the anxious heart of Isaiah's audience. He said that the anxious in heart are those who in their innermost thoughts are impatient with the apparent delay in God's fulfillment of His promises. They think in their heart that He is too slow and that He delays His redemption. Christian, do you, do you have an anxious heart? Have you had an anxious heart? Have you you ever felt that God is too slow in bringing about His purposes? Too slow in fulfilling His promises? Have Have you ever considered that your anxiety might be an expression, not merely of unbelief, but of judgment upon God and upon His purposes and upon His providence? Our anxiety might be a way of condemning God for His lack of good timing. Our anxiety might be a way of condemning God for His apparent inactivity. Our anxiety may declare that we do not believe that God is good or that God really cares about us or about our situation. To those with anxious hearts, here is Isaiah's message. Stop it. Stop being anxious. I mean, isn't that the thrust of be strong? Fear not. At first, it seems like a parent saying to a crying child, just stop crying now. Actually, what we read here is that Isaiah's admonition to stop being anxious is is conditioned upon a truth that he has already announced. Here's the truth. God is coming to slaughter his enemies and save his people. That is why you don't need to be anxious. I've told you this before, Isaiah is saying. That's why you can be strong and fear not, O people of Judah. God is coming with recompense and He's coming for redemption. This is not a new message for Isaiah. It was His message in the passage we studied last week in chapters 28 to 33. It was the message that we studied the week before in chapters 24 through 27. It was the message that we studied the week before that and the week before that. And we could keep going until we reach the beginning of the book. God is your salvation. Trust in Him. Beyond Isaiah saying to God's people, stop being anxious, he says something profoundly startling. He says that God will come. God will come. You know, at one level, we could simply take this to mean that God will make His presence known through the defeat of the Assyrians. Their defeat would mean Judah's salvation. And who but the sovereign God could bring that about? That's certainly true at one level. And yet, at another level, the coming of God to save His people looks 
beyond the historical events of the 8th century B.C. As we will see when we consider the redemption of God's people in a more fulsome manner when we look at chapter 35, uh, ultimately we see that God comes, that when God comes, when He takes on flesh in the person of Jesus, this is being fulfilled. For now what we need to see is that the consequence of God's coming is both judgment and mercy. The consequence of God's coming is both slaughter and salvation. It's both recompense and redemption. These two things are related to one another and they are related to one another because they are both related to God and His coming. That's what this verse teaches us. Recompense uh, is something of an old idea. I'm fond of old ideas. But uh, it's, this idea is not used a whole lot these days. Recompense is giving something to someone as a reward. A reward for what they deserve. You'll notice here in verse 4 that it's linked with vengeance. The idea of God coming with recompense and vengeance here then is that God is coming to give His enemies the punishment that they deserve. He is coming to give them the reward that they have earned for their rebellion. And yet, God is also coming to save. You know, maybe you haven't thought a lot about salvation before. But inherent in the idea of salvation and the concept itself is a rescue from danger. Will God save everyone? Well, I don't think so. Uh, this verse doesn't give us that idea. Instead, this, this verse gives us the idea that his salvation is actually particular. No, notice, behold, your God will come and he will save you. There is a, a definite group of people that Isaiah has in mind here. God will save his people and he will judge his enemies. You know, all of this can be somewhat off-putting, can't it? Uh, knowing that the recompense and redemption are related to one another through God's coming is, is somewhat hard to take. Um, you know, one Christian observed, we, of course, we would like to have only one of these realities. Blessing without curse. Salvation without judgment. Heaven without hell. And we're always in danger of rewriting the rules, so to speak, to suit our own inclinations. But the biblical revelation has a stubborn shape to it that resists all manipulation of this kind. That's true of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. And it's true of these two chapters together. While we may be frustrated that we cannot have one without the other, while we may be frustrated that we cannot have redemption without recompense, we ought to be grateful that we do not have recompense without redemption. God's coming accomplishes, brings about both recompense and redemption. For Isaiah, this is a reality that's still in the future. For Isaiah, God has not yet come, but He will come. He will come. For Isaiah and his 8th century audience, this is a reality that still lay ahead. But it is a word that needs to be heard in the present. And that is where these chapters begin, with a call to hear about the coming recompense. And as we turn to consider our second point, turn to the beginning of Isaiah chapter 34, which is on page 594 of the Bibles provided. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And as I do, consider what we learn about God 
and what we learn about the extent of His judgment. Ask yourself that question. What am I learning here about God and about the extent of His judgment? Isaiah 34, let's begin there in verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. And all their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of the rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall pass, possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles for its tresses, its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these things shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He casts the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The poetic images of judgment that we find here in Isaiah 34 are horrific. And yet they're to be heard according to verse 1. The nations, the peoples... The earth, the world, and all that fills it, and all that comes from it, Isaiah says, are to hear this message of recompense. This is a command. We are to hear this message. And, and hearing in the Bible is not simply allowing the sounds to kind of go into your ears. Hearing in the Bible is taking the message in, understanding its message. 
and relevance. And taking the message to heart. More than that, hearing in the Bible means heeding the message. This is a message not just for 8th century Judah, but it's a message for us. And here is the first part of the message. The Lord is enraged and furious. Verse 2. He is enraged and furious with all the nations of the world. They are all deserving of His destruction. They are all, in fact, devoted to destruction. I wonder what your gut reaction to this news is. That God is enraged. That He's furious and angry. Do you think to yourself, God's enraged. That's not okay. Do Do you know why God is angry? Uh, He is angry at mankind's sin and rebellion. The the nations have rejected the authority of the one who has authored their lives. Following the lead of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, mankind has decided to live their own way rather than God's way. And as a result of this rebellion, sin spreads. It, It racks up injustice and cruelty. And God is angry for this open rebellion. It's, it's, it's a pretty common reaction, I think, to be unsettled by God's anger at sin. But, but let me ask you this. Have you ever been angry at sin, at rebellion or, or injustice? Have you ever been enraged at someone who cruelly harmed another human being? Have you ever been enraged at injustice? Do you know why you get angry at cruelty and injustice? You get angry at cruelty and injustice, and I think rightfully so, because you have been made in God's image. That impulse to be angry at sin and injustice and cruelty, I think comes from God. Anger in and of itself is not wrong. Uh, There can be righteous anger, but the difference between man and God is that God's anger is always righteous. And ours is rarely righteous. It rarely comes from perfectly pure motives. God's anger here is entirely appropriate. The world has rebelled against Him. The first three verses promise a worldwide recompense for rebellion. And with verse 4, we're coming to see that the vision is actually larger still. For this is a cosmic recompense. The, The skies, the heavenly hosts are involved in this vision. They're recipients of this recompense. Isaiah makes us look up to see the sword of judgment active in heaven, only to make us then look down and see God's sword active on earth. Judgment descends upon Edom, we're told there in verse 5. Edom stands as really a representative of the nations of the world. The nations will surely receive this recompense as well, but Edom is chosen as a representative because they have long been the enemy of the people of God. They have been an enemy of the people of God since the fourth book in the Bible, the book of Numbers. And they will actually continue to remain enemies with the people of God through the siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC, right down to the fall of Jerusalem in 587. Edom is an appropriate choice for representing the nations in open rebellion against God. The enemies of God's people are the enemies of God. Isn't that what verse 8 communicates? The the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for 
the cause of Zion, that's his city. Here Isaiah is foreshadowing the intermingling of recompense and redemption that we considered in verse 4 of chapter 35. Verses 9 and 10 cast this judgment, this recompense in terms of the past and of the eternal future. The images of sulfur and smoke recall what God did when He visited Sodom and Gomorrah in fiery judgment in Genesis chapter 19. The, the, the recompense pictured here in verses 9 and 10 is like that judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah, only infinitely worse. This judgment will never cease. The fire shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever and ever. This is the recompense of final judgment. The Apostle John writes about this recompense in Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. He uses Isaiah's language and Isaiah's imagery there. He recalls the fire and the smoke. But then the Apostle John gives us the excruciating reality that those who must endure this eternal judgment will do so self-consciously. They will be aware of it. Listen to what John says in Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. John writes, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. Those who must endure the final judgment, the eternal recompense of God, will eternally feel and know that they are enduring the eternal judgment of God. Hell is real. Never joke about it. Hell is real. And Isaiah says that you and I need to hear this. That the nations of the world need to hear this. Christian, your neighbor, your co-worker, your family, your friends need to hear this. And, and let the words of verse 10, the words night and day, come through your ears and home to your heart. There will be no relief, no rest from the recompense in hell. You know, here on earth, we, we rest at night. But in hell, the fire will not die out at night. And let another word in verse 10 sink in. Let that word forever sink in. Ironically, when we hear about God's eternal judgment, we're, we're tempted to judge God. You know, why we think, why should the world face this eternal judgment for a sin committed in time, in a finite space of time, we might ask? I think it would be hard to answer that inquiry than how uh, the great American Puritan Jonathan Edwards has answered this question. He wrote, Rebellion against God's authority and contempt of His majesty, which every sin contains, is an infinite evil. Because it has that infinite aggravation of being against an infinitely excellent and glorious majesty and most absolute authority. And therefore sins against one infinite in majesty, authority and excellency must be an infinite in aggravation. And so deserve not a finite, but an infinite punishment. Sin against the eternal God demands an eternal 
punishment. And because God is just, the punishment must fit the crime. Sadly, that means hell is a place of eternal self-conscious torment. Hell is real. And so is the recompense that takes place there. And the unfolding of this recompense promised, it really continues there in verses 10 through 17. Since verse 1 mentioned that this recompense was coming to the whole world and all that fills it and all that comes from it. It's only appropriate that Isaiah would prophetically predict the judgment that is to be carried out upon the land too. Edom will become a a desert wasteland, verse 10. The worst kinds of animals will dwell there, unclean animals. It's a place that is uninhabitable, really. And the mark of the curse from Genesis 3, thorns will fill the land, verse 13. This is not a place where humans can live, nor would they want to live. And in verse 16, Isaiah encourages readers. He says, seek and read from the book of the Lord. I think Isaiah is is exhorting us to go back and to read the other judgment passages from his book. Perhaps chapters 13 to 27. And what Isaiah is saying is this. Truly, truly, I say to you, this recompense is coming. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded it. Verse 16. Isaiah reminds us in verse 17 that this coming recompense will be an eternal reality. Those in rebellion against the Lord will be eternally rewarded for their rebellion. Christian, if your neighbor's house were on fire, you would go and help them. Will you not help them before the fire that will not die out reaches them? Brothers and sisters, in the words of one hymn writer, let us rescue the perishing. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them from pity, from sin and the grave. Weep over the erring one. Lift up the fallen one. Tell them of Jesus, mighty to save. Though they are slighting him, still he is waiting. Waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. He will forgive if they only believe. Brothers and sisters, this is our work. This is our commission from our Lord. We need to tell those around us that the recompense is coming. And we need to tell them that in Jesus Christ, redemption has come. Which is what we turn to think about next from Isaiah chapter 35. Let's turn now and consider our third point, the redemption. And as we do, uh, let's read Isaiah chapter 35. Let's begin there in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. We shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then... The eyes of the blind shall be opened 
and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall not belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor the ravenous beasts come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, I don't know if you, if you were to read these chapters together without really stopping, without, you'd notice that without skipping a beat, picking up his pen, so to speak, as we move from the last word of chapter 34 to the first word of chapter 35, Isaiah immediately describes a transformation that takes place. The barren desert, where chapter 34 ended, the barren desert in verse 1 is transformed into a blossoming desert. Which means that it's not a desert anymore. It's a garden. Take a look at the middle of verse 6. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a, a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Does that not sound like the restoration of the creation? Does that not sound like a, a beautiful garden? Who has heard of such a thing? Who has heard of a, a barren desert becoming a blossoming garden? How can that happen? The only way that it could happen is through the Creator redeeming and restoring His creation. The sorrow and groaning of the creation under the curse fades and finds the created order singing with joy in verse 2. You know, when you step back and take a look at this chapter from kind of a, a heightened vantage point, what you find is that this chapter is recompense in the reverse. All of the images from chapter 34 are reversed. In this reversal, the glory and majesty of God is put on display. Verse 2. And notice this reversal, this redemption of the created order, this rescuing it from the curse is the reason that Isaiah's audience is to be strong and not afraid. Because this restoration and redemption is coming, weak hands are to be strengthened, feeble, fearful, shaking knees are to be made firm in confidence. The anxious are to be encouraged. Isaiah means for this promise of coming transformation to be a source of trust in God. God's promise to transform should lead to trust. The people of Judah we're really hoping for a trans transformation too. Exile was their fear. Just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden for their sin against God, so the people of Judah, Isaiah promised them, were going to be cast out of their land for their sin against God. Exile was coming. Isaiah has already promised that to his readers. And yet, out of that difficult circumstance, God would make a way. A way of holiness 
as verse 8 calls it. Those who were carried off to exile would someday return, according to verse 10. The sorrow and sighing of the exile would be replaced with singing. And in fact, all of this transpired in history. In 586-587 BC, Babylon conquered Jerusalem and carried the people of Judah off to exile. Eventually, the, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and Cyrus decreed that the people of Judah, the people of Israel, could return home. And they did. And here's the thing. The Bible teaches us that Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled on multiple horizons. Yes, at, at one level, it is fulfilled in the return of the exiles in 537-538 BC. But did you notice the eternal language that Isaiah inserts into this passage that he uses there in verse 10? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Isaiah's prophecy, it has an eternal horizon in view. So when, when will this happen? When God comes. How, how will we know that God comes? Verse 5 tells us how we know God has come. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Friends, Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has come. Earlier in the service, we read from Luke's gospel, from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to, to 35. And in that passage, John the Baptist's disciples, they come up to Jesus and they ask him this question. Okay, so, so are you the one who's to come? Or shall we look for another? They ask Jesus. And then uh, Luke records that Jesus does a, a few miracles. He heals some people. And do you remember how Jesus then responds? Jesus says in that passage, Jesus says, Go and tell John what you have heard and seen. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus answers John's question, his disciples' question, by quoting from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, as well as from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. In other words, Jesus answers John's question by effectively saying, Yes, I am the one who is to come. God has come. Have you not seen what's happened, what I've done? Now, this raises a question for us, doesn't it? There are still deserts that need to be made gardens. Though we have been ransomed and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we have not yet made it to the heavenly Zion, as verse 10 says. Verse 9 tells us that one day all of the dangers in the world will be gone. But there are still dangers that we face in this life, aren't there? Sorrow and sighing and suffering have not been alleviated or eliminated. We face hardships and our hearts break. The complete redemption of the creation has not reached its consummation, its completion, but it has had its inauguration. <coughs> Jesus' miracles of making the lame to walk and the blind to see signal His power to restore the creation. 
And perhaps more than anything else in redemptive history, Jesus' resurrection from the dead signaled the inauguration of the new creation as we see that he was given a new and glorified body which can never die again. And the restoration and redemption of human hearts is taking place even now. What did the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17? He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has come, gone. The new has come. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are a living expression of the new creation, of God's work in your heart and soul. This body together is an expression that the new creation has dawned in Jesus Christ. Jesus, through His life, death, and resurrection, pouring out of His Spirit at Pentecost, Jesus bring about the redemption promised here in Isaiah 35. The New Testament writers see themselves and us as living in the time period that Isaiah spoke of. In His first coming, Jesus inaugurates. He, he brings, He begins the restoration of the creation. Beginning with sinners like you and me, making us new creations, calling us to walk in His way of holiness. And on the last day, the day of His return, of His coming again, He will consummate, He will complete the restoration of His creation. Jesus has come to save sinners from the coming recompense. And He will come again to save sinners in full, consummated redemption. And the question that each one of us needs to ask now is this. Are the final words of Isaiah chapter 35 verse 4, the final words there for us, personally, individually, are these words for you? He will come to save you. When Jesus Christ returns, is He coming to save you? If these words are not true for you, then you need to know that He will come for you with vengeance. Remember where we began. Recompense and redemption are related to one another. They're related to one another because they're both related to God and His coming. Friends, do not be a fool. Come and walk in the way of Jesus Christ. Come and walk in the way of holiness by believing that He came to save you. Believe that He will come again to gather you home to heaven to that everlasting joy and that everlasting delight to the eternal Zion. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to consider why Jesus Christ came to earth. He came to save sinners. You and I and everyone else here have sinned against the living God. We have rebelled against God. But Jesus has not. You have doubted God's purpose and plans. You and I and everyone on this earth have been anxious about what God is doing. Sinfully anxious. But you know what? Jesus was never sinfully anxious. He always and perfectly trusted His Father in heaven. You and I and everyone here this morning have earned the recompense due to our rebellion against God. But Jesus did not. Because He was sinless... Glory was due to Him. That's the reward that He deserved. But before Jesus received glory in His resurrection, He received the recompense that our sins deserve on the cross. 
Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for sinners like you and me. And on the cross, He took upon Himself the punishment, the judgment, the recompense for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, thus proving to us that the new creation had dawned, thus proving to us that His righteous sacrifice was accepted by God on our behalf. And Jesus' resurrection signals to us that we will have all that He has if we place our faith in Him. Because we will have Him. And so Jesus calls us to turn from our sins. He calls us to turn to Him and be forgiven. To receive redemption instead of recompense. And a joyful welcome into His heavenly family. He calls us to believe that He lived and died and was raised for us. Friends, this is what it means to embrace Jesus Christ in faith. And, and if you want to think more about what it means to love Him and to serve Him and to follow Him, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news. Talk with the, the Christian friend or family member that you know here, that you've come with this morning. There, there's nothing more important to think about than this good news of Jesus Christ. As we conclude, I, I want to speak directly to, to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian, I want to speak directly to you about what it means to live in light of the fact uh, that the realities of the new creation have dawned in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, having been redeemed, we need to remember that our labors here on earth are not done. Though the glorious vision of Isaiah 35 has been inaugurated, it has not yet been consummated and completed. And until that day, until the day of Christ's return, it is our responsibility to bear witness to the fact that the new creation has dawned in Jesus Christ. The world needs to know what a renewed humanity in Jesus Christ looks like. The world needs to know what the way of holiness looks like. The world needs to know what it looks like to be redeemed and so be invited to escape the coming recompense. It looks like saying no to sin and saying yes to righteousness. It means putting off and putting away the old man. And putting on the new man in Jesus Christ. And to think just in some more practical terms about this. I want us to turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's begin looking at what Paul says in, in verse 22. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 978. Here, I think that Paul tells us what it looks like to live as a, a new creation. In Jesus Christ. What it looks like to live as one walking in the way and on the way of holiness. Uh, let's read Ephesians chapter 4. Um, let me begin there in verse 22. I'm going to read to verse 32. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather... 
let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we live in this way, the world should see what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Recompense is coming and redemption is needed. We need to live as those who are headed to heaven for the sake of those who are headed to hell. We want them to come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must live holy lives, lives longing for the final redemption, all because God has come to save us. Our recompense was poured out on Christ so that we might have redemption in Him and through Him. Let us always treasure the thought that God's love for us, for sinners like us, was so great that He would come to us so that we might come to Him. Let's pray together.